Five women have told newspapers that Donald Trump assaulted them. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. We have a man who's got a lifetime history of misogyny. It will take the presidency low, low, low. And we have a taped confession. I don't know what more people need before we start believing women. Trump called those accusations lies. Nobody has more respect for women than I do. Nobody. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. So, Heather, I've been watching, like you, like everyone, the horrific accounts of sexual harassment coming out over the last few weeks. First, of course, the accusations of sexual harassment and assault against Hollywood mega producer Harvey Weinstein. And then the dam broke. Women finally speaking out about what they'd only whispered about, maybe to each other for decades. And every day we seem to learn of another powerful man behaving badly in Hollywood, in politics, in journalism. And unfortunately, about every industry, every power center in America seems to be loaded with these guys. The hashtag MeToo opens up my eyes, the eyes of men, I think, everywhere. I mean, it's spread like a wind across fields of wheat the widespread nature of this problem. I mean, we're in an interesting moment. I think as we as a society recalibrate what we let powerful men get away with and how we judge them, powerful men and the things they do. (laughs) I mean, you know, if we, if powerful men get banged to hell for a thousand years, I think that will barely level the debt here. This includes presidents, from Thomas Jefferson's affair with his teenage slave, Sally Hemings, accusations against President Bill Clinton, our current president, Donald Trump. You know, Heather, what I would like you to do, you having really waded deeply into this area, studied it, thought a lot about it, is give us some historical context of where we've been and where we are now on this issue. Because, boy, it goes way, way back. But there's no doubt now is a moment of change. One, I frankly, that you've been talking about, predicting, teeing up, preparing us for. Since the first night you and I met. The the very first conversation we had. That's right. So I'm not at all surprised about where we are or the Me Too hashtag. And I'm one of the people who use the Me Too hashtag because this has been the story of my professional life and I guess the story of my life in general. And when I looked at the chat rooms, the blogs, the the messages, the petition campaigns immediately before the election and the way people rallied around presidential candidate Clinton, and then when I looked at the reaction to the election of Donald Trump and saw the enormous outpouring of the Women's March, which remains the largest single-day demonstration in American history, I said, women are getting involved again. And that has only ramped up. And I have said all along that what makes this moment unique in American history in terms of domestic politics is we have women stepping up taking control of the public narrative and of public politics in a way that they never have before. You know, we have a a wealth of expertise here uh, this evening because along with Heather, we have our guest, Ellen Fitzpatrick, professor of history at the University of New Hampshire. Her most recent book is The Highest Glass Ceiling, Women's Quest for the American Presidency. It's a delight to have you, Ellen. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So, Ellen, take a step back for us and ponder this moment. We have a man in the White House who's been accused of sexual harassment and assault. A lot of women felt the November election was a punch in the gut. 
and a big step back. And at the same time, we have a women's march that, as Heather says, is the largest demonstration in the history of the country. And sexual harassment is finally being confronted all over the map. How are these things connected? I mean, are we at one of these points of precipitation now that we'll look back on to say that was the moment that change really happened? I wish I could tell you that I know the answer to that, but I find it to be a completely fascinating paradox. I honestly think that since the election of Trump, it's a different moment. I do too. It's a different moment. One thing I think matters is that the women that – the younger women in particular that are coming forward now about sexual harassment and their experiences are unafraid to own their ambition. Therefore, they are willing to tell the stories without some express a certain amount of shame and guilt that goes with the whole experience. But they're willing to come forward and say, yeah, I went with so-and-so to the bar. I went to have a drink because I thought he could advance my career. And that, to me, is a different generation Mm -hmm. than an earlier generation of women who would have been so profoundly ashamed even to admit that they had professional ambitions that would have led them to curry the favor of a powerful man. And so in an interesting way, the so-called post-feminist generation has moved this conversation (laughs) in a more open way than anyone might have ever predicted. Yeah, the least thing one would expect in in some ways. I mean, I I love the way you frame that. You're absolutely right. The fact that women are recognizing that they have shared this history has really been brought to the fore, I think, ironically by the fact we have Donald Trump in the White House. That is, the behaviors that he has exhibited and that people are now identifying in journalism, in entertainment, in academia, in all the professions are ones that women understand, as I said from the very beginning, women got Donald Trump before anybody else or before men did because we had all worked with Donald Trump. You know, many people thought this kind of came to a head uh, during the campaign last year. You know, everyone remembers, I'm sure with great vividness, Trump, candidate Trump and the infamous 2005 Access Hollywood tape, which comes out right in the fall of last year, where he brags about grabbing women. Many thought that was it. That was the end of the campaign. Then over a dozen women come forward, accuse Trump of unwanted touching, kissing, groping. Trump responded like this. Every woman lied when they came forward to hurt my campaign. Total fabrication. The events never happened. Never. All of these liars will be sued after the election is over. But a simple phone call placed to the biggest newspapers or television networks gets them wall-to-wall coverage with virtually no fact-checking whatsoever. Here is why this is relevant to you. If they can fight somebody like me, who has unlimited resources to fight back, just look at what they can do to you, your jobs, your security, your education, 
your health care, the violation of religious liberty, the theft of your Second Amendment, the loss of your factories, your homes, and much more. Look at what they've done to you with your jobs. What a leap he makes about midway through that spiel. First, he's talking about them all lying. Then he's talking about what they'll do to your health care, your education. I mean, this man, as the representative of the United States, has called this question. I mean, <laughs> there's no doubt that he is, he is at the center of this conversation of men brutally exercising power uh, over women. Well, in Trump's case, again and again and again. And he doesn't go down. Well, the yeah. men walk in. Some men end up sort of rising up to defend him. Next thing you know, the man's the president of the United States. What happened during this campaign? What didn't happen that should have happened or we expected to happen once this tape came out? Well, I think part of what has happened is what's happened since he was elected. That is, the campaign is one thing, and you're hearing in that tape this effort to, uh, you know, drag in the kitchen sink and and the sponges and, you know, the wet mop and anything else that's around to, to deflect attention from the issue and to couch this in terms of a giant conspiracy of these politically correct, quote, people who are responsible for all the evils in, in society or whatever is making you unhappy. Once Trump is elected, however... And he clearly got a pass on that issue. Do you think he would get a similar pass? Now, let's even go back further. Would Bill Clinton had revelations like came out in his campaign back when? Would Bill Clinton be given a pass now? Would he have gotten one wit past Jennifer Flowers, the first of his explosions? I think it's hard to say whether Bill Clinton as president, when the Monica thing came out, he might still have gotten a pass because he was popular and well-liked mm-hmm. uh, once he was elected. In the campaign, he hardly got a pass. He got beaten up pretty well. It appeared that it was a one-story, the Jennifer Flowers thing. And I thought that the Clintons handled this by saying, we've had problems in our marriage. And Hillary said, if you don't like it, don't vote for him. You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. I'm sitting here because I love him and I respect him and I honor what he's been through and what we've been through together. And, you know, if that's not enough for people, then heck, don't vote for him. Then when Clinton becomes president and the whole story of Monica Lewinsky comes out and his behavior while he was president of the United States and the Paula Jones suit and all the it's rest of it. clearly serial behavior. Now, Hillary Clinton, by his own ad- admission, he was lying to his wife, and this was part of why he perjured himself, because he had not yet told his wife that it isn't a vast right-wing conspiracy, in fact, that's manufactured this story. I did it. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. I misled people, including even my wife. I deeply regret that. Now, 
in the context of these other stories and the anger and the kind of Me Too revelations, I think that there would be more women, uh, there were, of course, prior to this, but more women asking questions of Hillary Clinton about uh, her staying with her husband. The right always accused her of covering up for him. But I think if you look at the facts of it, she there was a period when she defended him before she knew that this was true. I was at the Wall Street Journal during the Clinton scandal. Mm-hmm. I recovered it for the Wall Street Journal and actually did a story in the front page where I dove into all of the accusations yeah. about Bill Clinton. The bottom line is Hillary knew just about all of it uh, as it was happening. It was just the deal she made in this marriage. And, and it's painful when you have that in your notebook. Uh, Clinton was literally, he was going round the clock. I mean, the number of women <laughs> I bumped into that, you know, and, and they had relations with him was stunning. It was stunning. And it, and it continued right up through the 08 election, after the 08 election, right up, frankly, to present. And, you know, and I, and I think about that long history of Clinton doing this. Um, it was, you know, uh, clearly he's using his power. He's using the fact that he's the president of the United States. I don't know how I compare him necessarily to Harvey Weinstein. I'm sort of looking at these two guys saying what's different, what's the same. But there's no doubt about the fact that Bill Clinton is operating at a time that is now over. But right now I think about how women would look at it. And I think that it is a time of real change. So can I throw this out here that I'd love to hear your opinion about? Because one of the things that has been fascinating to many of us about the Trump presidency is how many of President Trump's behaviors mimic those of domestic abuse. So, for example, the gaslighting where you say to somebody that something happened really didn't happen, the lying, the refusal to accept blame. And it it fascinates me that we're at this moment where those techniques have been applied to the American people in general. So that when a woman comes forward now and says, look, this happened to me in my private life, there now is a public context for that in a way that there was not before President Trump. So I wonder if one of the reasons we're seeing this shift is what many Me Too women experienced privately is now sort of on the national stage. Well, it certainly opens it up to, uh, I think, legitimize it and to... uh, to give a kind of credibility to these multiple voices that they did not have before. The tape that you played of Trump talking about, oh, all these women are lying, that used to fly because people could say, oh, I wasn't there, I don't know what happened, you know, right. whatever, it's probably just someone was making stuff up. And now they're going, well, wait a minute, we are literally looking every day at our TV screen at the president of the United States flat out lying to us. We're looking at Kellyanne Conway lying to us and saying to us, I didn't lie. And all of a sudden it becomes, well, wait a minute, all these people, are all these people lying when these when, when they come forward and say, you know, I was harassed by this guy too, I was, I was, I was. People are starting to say, no, wait a minute, we're seeing how this happens. We're living it in a very public way. And I think that's one of the reasons all this is broken open the way it is, that women are stepping up to the plate, but also that people for whom this was not an issue previously suddenly have it in front of them every day of their lives. Change has arrived, no doubt. Uh, Heather, uh, Ellen, stand by. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, We'll be right back.
All right, we're back. This episode should perhaps have a parental advisory warning since we are talking about the sex lives of presidents. Let's talk about our presidents. Uh, Ellen, let's let's go back. Thomas Jefferson, blood founding father, genius who wrote our Declaration of Independence. He has children with a teenage slave, Sally Hemings. How should that influence our view now? How should our views of so many of these presidents be influenced now as we look at them through the lens of the modern? Well, I don't think, first of all, that we uh, can fall into the old stereotype of thinking that women are paragons of virtue and men are repositories of evil behavior. So there are plenty of women whose uh, behavior does not uh, meet the current moral criteria of what is appropriate, but none of them have been president. <laughs> so, right, right. so we can move right past that point <laughs> right. and uh, not linger on right. how, how it affected their time right. in office. One of the few areas where we can draw a very neat line here. <laughs> well, we, have a, we have a clear sample here. Yeah, that's right, yes. And I think part of the question is, I don't, you know, there's a tension between the fact that there's no real expiration date on decency. You know, was it okay in the 19th century to violate a slave woman, to exploit situations of power? It's never okay to do those things. It wasn't in any period of history. And people, the important thing for people to understand is that those people were as real as we are and they suffered as much from this kind of aggressive misuse of power as any person today. You know, just we'll run a thought experiment. Sally Hemings with a Twitter account. I mean, if she was able to speak broadly to the world. And anonymously. And anonymously to say, Thomas Jefferson did this to me. We'd be looking at history, I think, in a different way. I mean, a big part of this is that women have now a moment of appeal. An appeal that can draw, as Heather talks about, a community around them to say, me too, me too. And yes, something similar happened from this man to me. That's an enormous change in the way people live in the world, frankly. Especially women are able to live in the world and bring accountability that just was not possible before. Yes, I just don't know that disclosure alone writes the imbalance of social, economic, and political power. Absolute agreement. Absolute grow. agreement. It's a starting point, though. So maybe it's a catharsis, as it was in um, the late 1960s and early 1970s when feminists raised many of these issues, and there was a feminist movement backing those revelations. I, I think what we're dealing with, we've, we've dealt with in other issues of social justice, is rather than drift, which we've had in many areas of American life over years, back and forth, you know, furious push and shove going on in the society on these fault line issues of race, class, and gender, which are, I think, the three big fault lines always in American life. And I think what we're feeling now is a, is a ferocious shoving that's going on from from the various communities in American life. I think those women were and are deeply aggrieved. All the women down in the mall. You know, my wife was down there. All of her friends were down there. You know, they came back after this and said, okay, so what changed? What changed? We were down to the biggest demonstration ever. We showed solidarity. And then all of a sudden, it seems like they're getting hit again. 
and and I think what we're really experimenting with now is is ways in which individuals, women in this case, are acting on the public and political stage in a new fashion in terms of grabbing power. You know, these hashtags are part of that. These are powerful men in the power centers of America, not women at the top snow-capped peaks of these places, frankly. It's pretty much all men. And they're being taken down. I mean, I think about now the men I covered. You know, many of them are on the third and fourth wife, and they're lying in bed at four in the morning, <laughs> looking over Worrying. their, looking over their, staring at the ceiling. I know this is happening, you know, and then they roll over and they, you know, spoon with the fourth wife and whisper, honey, you're different. You know, they're now wondering <laughs> who's going to come forward right now among this new generation of women are saying, I've had enough. Well, I think that, again, younger women for whom a lot of the, the you know, much was made of the so-called post-feminist generation. But it seems to me that the daughters of the feminist generation, second wave feminists, got more from their moms than maybe anyone's given them credit for and or the older generation has given them credit for. And now they're unwilling to accept as normal, some of the things that older women sort of say, well, that's the way it was. Yeah, and that's what Gloria Steinem literally said before the Vincent case, which is the big Supreme Court case in 1986 that established sexual harassment as the, the law of the land by the Supreme Court. Before that, Gloria Steinem said, this is just the way it was. This is what happened in every workplace. Well, I, I, what astonished me about the Me Too hashtag was not the Me Too hashtag, but how many men were surprised by it. You know, when mm -hmm. we made lists of what the way American women live, you know, not walking to your car at night, carrying your keys in such a way that you could use them as a weapon, all those things that women do instinctively. So many of my men friends had no concept that that's how we behave. That's how we've been taught to behave and that's how we have always behaved. And that's what I found shocking about it is, is not only that every woman had experienced this, but that so many men had no idea. It just really reinforced the idea we were in a separate place. But that makes me wonder, Ellen, as we see these sexual assault allegations springing up all mm -hmm. across America in so many different fields, not only in the state houses and in obviously the White House, but also in journalism and in media. And there's one in academics now, too. And I'm sure it's going to be everywhere. Wall Street is next. Well, <laughs> yeah, that'll be a shock, won't it? Right. Um, Casablanca, shock, shock. So that there is gambling in this establishment. Right. Um, what do you think is the fastest solution to, to answering this, this deep, deep gendered problem in American society? How do we solve it? How do we begin to address it? Well, I think that part of it is going to come from these young women themselves. That is, it comes from the grassroots. It comes from the bottom up, so to speak. It's coming from... Uh, people who have lived through these experiences. And the key thing, I think, is the willingness to, A, own their ambition, and B, speak without shame about the experience. That is what has kept a lot of people silent over long periods of time. If you take the shame away and you're in a different sort of social and historical moment where you don't have to be ashamed of the fact that some guy 
treated you this way. It doesn't have to be a private secret that you carry for the rest of your life like, gee, what was I doing wrong? I shouldn't have worn this or that or did I encourage him in some way? You get enough people lined up who are saying, oh, you too? Exact same scenario. That is really what drove the women's liberation movement of the 60s and 70s. So it may be that out of all of this will come a series of connections that younger women will make and uh, move us all in a, in a different direction into the future. I hope so. That's what I hope for, for, for younger women today, that that will happen and that and they will, you know, they're more running for office. They're more challenging the status quo. In the end, some of these people who felt very little enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton may look back upon her and that campaign that she ran for all its faults and all of her faults as a watershed of sorts. That is a brilliant contextualization of this moment. You know, we live within our own generation. That's the time in which we're in. And sometimes it's hard to see how generations change. Generations all live in regard and reaction to their predecessors. And sometimes we miss the fact that they're evolving, often uh, in ways that are surprising against what we would expect. And I think you're absolutely right about this new generation driving this conversation. And I think that might be seen as progress at some point as it all moves forward to whatever comes next. Ellen, Heather, this has been a great discussion. Thank you for uh, illuminating so much of the landscape. Ellen Fitzpatrick, Professor of History, University of New Hampshire. Her most recent book is The Highest Glass Ceiling, Women's Quest for the American Presidency. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Heather, always good to chat. It is indeed, Ron. I'm Ron Suskind. and this is Freak Out and Carry On. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out, Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.